started here and in an effort to make things more confusing I've gone out of my way to call this on the at least on our streaming this is called uh, the new covenant part C but the handout you have is handout B if that's not confusing enough if that doesn't mess you up look at page two of the handout and it's upside down <laughs> <laughs> so, it takes a lot of work to try to be this confusing. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so you'll just have to flip that over. I was telling the, the earlier the folks here that it was earlier that by the time I caught that, it was too late. And uh, so I wasn't going to run off another 40 pages to uh, correct that. You just have to flip it over. Um, let's open in a word of prayer and uh, have a quick, just a very quick review summary, and then we'll look at what we have for this evening. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for allowing us to meet together tonight. And as we look at your word, we pray that uh, we would have understanding. Uh, Lord, give us the conviction to uh, look at your word and understand what it says literally and in context. And uh, Father, it's, we don't want these things to be right. I mean, we do want to be right and correct, um, but we want to be faithful to what you have uh, written. That's our, our biggest desire is to be pleasing to you, even in how we understand your word. And so be with us tonight. We commit this time to you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. So as we've been looking at the new covenant, we covered some things that we already knew just simply about the covenant, but we spent most of our time so far uh, staying in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, because this is the most important uh, passage that gives us the fullest expression of the new covenant. There's other passages that tell us about the new covenant, but none are quite as full as these verses that we have in Jeremiah 31. And so that's why we spent so much time on that. And uh, as we were studying uh, Jeremiah 31, um, last week I had uh, mentioned um, this aspect of uh, Jeremiah 31 where it talks about uh, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, and that I took that as them knowing God in a believing way, not just knowing about God, not just knowing God exists, but that this knowing is, is more of a believing knowing. And I asked the question uh, about any other passage in the Bible that would suggest that at some time all Jews will be believers. And so we turn to Romans chapter 11. Uh, 
And we looked at verse, well, we looked at a bunch of the chapter spent, didn't look at the last, the tail end as much, but verse 26 of Romans chapter 11 was the key verse that we looked at where it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. And uh, as we were talking uh, about that in verse seven, in verse seven, it says, uh, what then? Israel did not obtain what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Well, I got uh, a question about that. And so what I want to do here is uh, very briefly talk about that just a little bit more, just to, to answer uh, the question. And it really pertains to the word elect, where it says the elect have obtained it. So why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11. And we'll be a few other places in our New Testament here real quick. But uh, Romans chapter 11 is where we're going to start. In, in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have these things that are called word groups. Word groups. And these are words that share the same root. They have the same root. And they're usually, these word groups are usually divided according to parts of speech. So. In these word groups, you'll have a noun, there'll be a noun form, there'll be a verb form, and there'll be an adjective form. That's not always the case, but often it is the case. Uh, but they'll all be connected to the same root. And this is what we have here with the word elect in verse 7 of uh, Romans chapter 11. And um, when we look at this word elect, that the um, verb form is a little bit different than this, and it's almost always translated as chosen, as chosen. Eklegomai is the Greek word. Uh, the, the word here in Romans 11, 7 is eklage, eklage. And the verb is eklegomai. You can kind of hear the similarity uh, between those words. But the verb form appears 21 times in the New Testament. 21 times in the New Testament. We're not going to go through all those, but it appears 21 times. The uh, adjective, the adjective form is eklektos. You can hear the similarity there, eklektos. And it appears 24 times. Now, you mathematicians out there, how many times are we up so far? 20, 45. 21 and 24 equals 45. So the adjective appears 24 times. And it's usually translated either as chosen, like the chosen one or chosen ones, those who are chosen, 
or elect, elect, referring to people. Um, but in our passage in Romans 11, we have the noun form, the noun form, ek lage, ek lage. And it only appears seven times, seven times in the New Testament. And, and uh, we will be looking at these. So these seven occurrences are in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 verses 5, 7, and 28. Romans 11, verse 5, verse 7, and 28. And the last two, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 10. Now, so you notice out of those seven times, four of those appear in Romans. So over half of them appear in Romans. Moreover, those four times in the book of Romans all appear in the same context. Romans 9, 10, 11, all three chapters are in the same context and of those four, three of them appear in Romans chapter 11, or the chapter we looked at. Okay? So that's important to note. This, this is a major word for Paul in this passage, uh, in this chapter, and in the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, as we think about this word, what's it mean, you know, what's the significance of this word? There's two things to consider, just the, the dictionary meaning of the word and then how it's used in the book of Romans. So to summarize the, the dictionary meaning, okay, this is a noun and as a noun, it refers to either a person, place, thing, or idea. Nouns in Greek function as nouns in English. Person, place, or thing, or idea. And the idea aspect of the noun seems to be what this word refers to. It's referring to an idea. So when we have this word that's translated elect here in verse 7, Romans 11, 7, it's referring to an idea. The idea of some kind of selection or choosing. Some kind of selection or choosing. Um, it's also generally agreed by the dictionaries, the fancy word for dictionaries, a lexicon, and commentaries that our word here, elect, ek lage, when it's compared to the adjective, so when the noun's compared to the adjective, 
the noun is expressing an abstract idea while the adjective is referring to something concrete. We see this uh, here in the fact that the noun, what we have in front of us here in 11.7, is referring to an idea. Ideas are abstract things, whereas the adjective refers to people. It's re referring to a person. That's a concrete thing. You know, I, I don't have a hard time uh, understanding Conway Bachelor because he's a person that I can see, right? It's a concrete thing. But when we say, well, that goes on to eternity, eternity is an idea. And that's a little bit more abstract, don't you think? It's a little bit harder to understand. So this is what we have here. This word, the elect, is referring to an idea, and it's referring to the idea of the action of selecting or choosing. So let's look at some of these other passages before we get into the book of Romans. So turn back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Now, again, this is, this is a noun. Every passage we're going to talk about, this, the word we're interested in is a noun. So verse 15, Acts 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen. That's our word a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So uh, the context here, the broader context, is Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And at the point of this verse, Ananias is questioning the Lord about taking Paul in. The Lord told Ananias, go get this guy. And Ananias is saying, hey, this is the guy who persecutes the church. And so verse 15 is the Lord's response uh, to Ananias. And he says, go because uh, this one is a chosen. He is selection, a selection. He is an election vessel to me, okay? So, um, so this is a noun, and I don't, I don't mean to get too uh, grammarly or grammatical on you, but it's a, it's a noun that's being used as an adjective. It's describing the word vessel. You see that? Look at verse. For he is a chosen, Vessel. The word chosen is modifying the word vessel. And, and so it's being used as an adjective in this case. The, the thing we have to remember is even though this noun is being used as an adjective, it still contains with it, it never loses the fact that it's referring to the idea of the action of selecting something, of picking something out. And so what we find here is that 
uh, the Lord is simply telling Ananias that uh, Paul has been chosen by him, that Paul is a choice or a special instrument of God based upon God uh, choosing him. Okay? And, and so um, election, the idea of election works as a noun here. Um, and, and so we're kind of building our basis. Now, uh, we're not going to Romans. We're going to go right to 1 Thessalonians, right? To 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll come back to Romans. But I want to get the non-Roman passages under our belt. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. So it says here, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So they translate it how it should be, election or selection there, uh, by God. So um, the New King James here confuses the Greek a little bit. So what I just read to you is, is not the best translation. The New American Standard offers a better translation. It says this, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, beloved by God, his choice of you, his choice of you. So that's okay. That's okay as long as we understand choice is actually a noun and not a verb. It's not talking about a verbal action there. It's a noun describing what God has done. Uh, literally, let me give you the literal translation. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, the election of you. The election of you. And so, again, the emphasis here is on God's act of choosing the Thessalonians, God's act of choosing the Thessalonians. Now, we can't make any determination uh, right here as to what this choosing and election were for. Okay, you know, we, from this one verse, we don't see that. Now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Second Peter chapter one, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. There's our word, election. Remember, it's a noun. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Again, a slightly more literal translation will be helpful. It would go like this. Therefore, rather, 
And this is in contrast to verse 9, verse 10 in contrast to verse 9. Therefore, rather, brethren, be diligent. It's a command. Be diligent to make your calling and election uh, firm, to make firm your calling and election. For doing these things, you will never stumble. Now, the calling and election here refers back to the things mentioned in verses 5 through 7. So look back there. In verse 5 it says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Notice this word diligence. And in our verse, in verse 10, more diligent. They're the same, same word. They're connected. Okay, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So they're to add all these things. They're to be diligent to make these things a part of their Christian life. And so the word calling and election refer back to this. Um, this is their calling and election to make these things a part of their daily life. And, and so here, this word election is, again, the emphasis is on this idea that God has chosen them to live this way in the way that describes in verses 5 through 7. They were called and selected to do these things. They're to be diligent in doing these things. And if they do these things, they uh, won't stumble and they enter into the everlasting kingdom abundantly. Um, the issue here is not if they enter the kingdom. The issue here is how they enter the kingdom. So uh, this, isn't, this isn't a passage about entering the kingdom. It's a, a passage about how you enter the kingdom. You can enter the kingdom abundantly or not. And so Paul is trying to tell, or Peter's trying to tell them about entering it abundantly. So we've sort of formed a basis. We've sort of formed a basis for our understanding of this word. And again, I'm emphasizing the fact that it's a noun and it refers to the idea of someone choosing something. And in most cases here, it's God that's choosing. Now let's go back to Romans and we're going to start in chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, remembering that Romans 9, 10, and 11 go together. One context, one flow of thought in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So to understand Romans 11, 7, you've got to understand Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And... Um, I didn't write uh, verse 11. 911 is our verse here. Um, and so in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, it says, 
For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And so there's a contrast that's being made here between uh, election and works. Election and works. And he makes this clear a little bit later because election is a gracious election. And it's got to be gracious because no works are involved. If works were involved, it wouldn't be gracious. Okay? By being gracious, it means there's no works involved. All right? So in the context here of Romans 9, this is dealing with God's selection of Abraham as the one through whom God has chosen to work. Okay? It's God's selection of Abraham to be the one through whom God has chosen to work. Now, where in the Bible do we find God's selection of Abraham? Genesis. Can we get more specific? There's 50 chapters in Genesis. <laughs> So Genesis chapter 12, right? Genesis, well, actually the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Now we're not, we've read this particular set of verses over and over again as we've been studying the covenants because this is where the Abrahamic covenant is. But um, if we would take the time to read this tonight, we're not going to, but if, if we took the time to read this, the one thing that you're not going to find here is any mention of God selecting Abraham. Nowhere in there does it say God chose Abraham. It just says God called him, right? What's the difference? Well, one's very specific. And the other one's, well, call could be anything. But it calls not election. Calls not choosing. So... We have a little bit of a dilemma, but thankfully the Bible solves its own dilemmas. Because if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. So at the end of the historical books, before the poetical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, look what it says there. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. You are the Lord God. You are Yahweh Elohim, who, what? Who chose Abram. Who chose Abram. And listen. It's very specific. It's not just a generic reference here. Who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So this is talking about the time of Genesis chapter 11 and 12. So this is a cross-reference. Right? You may not have that in your Bible as a cross-reference, but it should be a cross-reference in your Bible. Nehemiah 9-7, cross-referenced. To Genesis 11, uh, yes, chapter 11 and 12. 
So this is talking about God choosing Abram. And the word choose here is the equivalent of the root that we're looking at in the New Testament. And this choosing is subsequently attached to Isaac and Jacob. Okay, it goes on to Isaac and Jacob. Go back to Romans 9. Back to Romans 9. When we consider the story of God choosing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what we find is that there's always competition. There's always competition. God did not choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac, the son of promise, the son of Sarah. God did not choose Esau, the eldest. He chose Jacob, the youngest, the younger. Furthermore, in choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this choosing relationship, this election relationship is extended. It's extended to the descendants that run Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants from that line. It runs uh, to them. So two references to write down. I'll read them. You write them down. Psalm 105, verse 6. Psalm 105, verse 6. This is what it says. O seed of Abraham, O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. His chosen ones. Okay? It's the same word that's used in Nehemiah of God choosing Abraham. Second reference I want you to write down is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. Isaiah 41, verse 8. Here's what it says. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen... And sometimes in Isaiah, that can refer to the Messiah. But in this case, it can't because of the following phrase. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. So, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So this is talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are referred to as chosen. Same word that appears in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, in reference to God choosing Abraham. So the election here that we find in Romans chapter 9, the election that we find here is God's gracious selection of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's his selection of them. It's a selection of Abraham as opposed to anybody else on the face of the earth. It's his selection of Isaac instead of Ishmael. It's his selection of Jacob instead of Esau. 
And this selection, this election deals with who God is going to use to bring out his Messiah, through whom the Messiah will come. So that's Romans chapter 9. That's Romans chapter 9. Now let's go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And before we get to verse 7, we got to get to verse 5. Okay, verse 5, because this is the next place that our word appears. Verse 5 says, So even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So this is talking about God's gracious selection of the remnant. God's gracious selection of the remnant. And it's best to view this as a corporate election or corporate selection. The selection of the group as a whole rather than the individuals who are a part of that group. Now, a question that might be raised is how does one enter into this gracious selection? How do you get into the gracious selection? Well, if you hold your finger here and just turn back to Romans chapter 5, we see this. Romans chapter 5, we see how you enter God's grace. Okay? This is, how, this is not how um, God's grace appears. It's how you enter God's grace. So look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? At whom there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access, we have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The grace here is referring back to the concept of salvation that's talked about of being justified. This is the grace. And how do you have access to that grace? You have access to that grace by faith. By faith in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is how people enter into God's grace. God's grace is there, but how do you become a part? How do you take advantage of God's grace? It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the order of things in these two verses is this. Faith, entrance into God's grace, justification. That's how it goes. So this word election deals with God's selection, his gracious selection, election according to grace, gracious selection. Uh, the selection that's in line or with reference to his grace of the remnant, of the remnant, of the remnant as opposed to the majority of the nation of Israel. So a minority, a small 
peace. And these people that belong to the remnant are believers. So the short answer is how do you get into the remnant is trusting Jesus Christ as your savior. That's how you get into the, the remnant. That's how you become a part of the select group. God has chosen to preserve Israel through the remnant. And you become part of the remnant through belief. Now we get to verse 7. So Romans 11, down to verse 7, all that to get to this verse that the question is about. And in verse 7, we find that Paul's explaining what he just talked about in verses 5 and 6. Okay. And uh, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. So the election, the election, the the. the the object, those that are the object of God's selection. Well, in verse 5, what is the object of God's selection? It is the remnant. The remnant is the object of God's selection. This group that we're referring to, that Paul refers to as the remnant. And so the emphasis in verse 7 is actually... The emphasis isn't even actually on the group. It's the emphasis is on that this is something God does. God does. If Paul wanted to emphasize the group or the people, he would have used the adjective and not the noun. He uses the noun because he wants to emphasize the idea of the action of God selecting this group to be the ones through whom that he is preserving Israel. So, and, and so this is a preserving act of choosing the remnant. It's a preserving act. Uh, God is not selecting, he's not selecting people for salvation here. And this is evident from verse 23. If you look at verse 23, says, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, the they there is referring to the Jews who have hardened themselves or who have been hardened. If they don't continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. So it's using the illustration of the olive branch and the Gentiles being grafted in, and the unbelieving Jews being cut off, the unbelieving Jews, if they believe, they're grafted back in. So their hardening is not a permanent hardening. So even though there are some Jews, the majority of Jews are not in the remnant. If they believe, they become part of the remnant. And so this is, this is God selecting this group, this remnant, that he is going to preserve the nation of Israel uh, for the time of the restoration. The remnant's the, the group that's going to um, get the restoration, the national restoration. So the remnant is going to make it through the church age. The remnant's going to make it through 
the tribulation, the remnant's going to make it into the millennium. Now, that's not to say individuals are going to live through that entire time. But the group of, that is the remnant, who are believers, they make it all the way through. So the believing Jews, whoever's alive at the time of the second coming, they make it alive into the millennial kingdom. They're not going to die. Okay, they make it alive. So that's what Paul's talking about, and that's why he said, and so all Israel can be saved. And in verse 28, he says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, same word, our word, concerning the election, they're beloved. So these unbelieving, these hardened Jews are enemies of the gospel. But because of the election, God's choosing, and I think the this choosing goes all the way back to Abraham. They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay, and certainly that this here is not referring to salvation at all. So um, this selection that we see here in Romans fits perfectly with how uh, God chose Abraham and his descendants for the special purpose, the special purpose of being the ones through whom he was going to provide the Messiah to Israel and the Savior to the world. So why, um, why is this so hard to understand? Why is this so difficult to concept to understand? Because if you kind of just read it in context, you, you don't stray too far from, yeah, this is just God choosing Israel or the remnant. That's pretty much what it says. So why is that so hard? Well, it's so hard because probably most of the teaching on this passage has said election deals with individual salvation. But that's not what, not in this passage. It doesn't deal with individual salvation at all. Um, Matter of fact, if the, if the concept of election deals with individual salvation at all, it would be a minority use. The predominant use of the word election in both the Old Testament and New Testament is going to be God choosing Israel or something associated to the nation of Israel. Almost every single place, that's what it's talking about. So it's really kind of unfortunate that uh, New Testament scholarship has neglected the term election in its proper context in favor of just reading something into it everywhere the word appears. And that's, that's not good. So, uh, so there was a question on that from last week. Is there any other questions on it this week? I'm hoping to get all the questions answered so I don't have to come back and answer them again. So in any, any, uh, any more questions about these, these references in Romans chapter 11? Clear enough? Okay. Now, let's go back to the New Covenant. 
All right, New Covenant. We have 15 minutes. But that's fine because we're going to, this next part's going to be pretty, pretty quick. Even though I got 12 pages of notes on it, um, I'm cutting it down. Okay. So we covered uh, Jeremiah 31. Might as well just keep that open. Keep your Bible open, Jeremiah 31. Since everybody's already memorized it, I'm not going to read it anymore. <laughs> but I, I do want to make um, six general observations about Jeremiah, the Jeremiah 31 passage, okay? This is nothing brilliant. This is nothing super insightful. You'll see all of this, right? So... Well, the, the six observations I want to make about this passage is, number one, that the new covenant is future from Jeremiah's perspective. Okay? It's future from Jeremiah's perspective. This is probably on the upside down page of your notes. So it's future. So consider the phrase, these phrases. The days are coming, points to the future. I will make, I will make, I will put, I will be, they shall be, they all shall know, I will forgive, I will remember no more. So you got this repeated emphasis on the future aspect. So the new covenant from Jeremiah's point of view is future. Jeremiah is his prophecy is promising. It's making the promise of the new covenant. Okay, of course, again, a promise looks towards what? The future. Future. If you make a promise to give somebody something, you, by definition, you're not giving it to them right now, right? So it's got to be future. So somewhere in the future. Second observation is that the new covenant is a covenant that Yahweh makes, that the Lord makes. Okay, repeated over and over again, you have the, the statements, says the Lord, and the I will statements. Over and over and over again, you have this. So this is the Lord making the covenant. The third observation that uh, we need to make is that the new covenant is made with the entire nation of the Jews. The entire nation, not part of it. Okay, and we see that from the different references to uh, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and so on throughout uh, this passage. Uh, fourth observation, the fourth observation is that the new covenant is different, is going to be different than the covenant that God made with the Exodus generation. So the new covenant is going to be different than the covenant God made with the Exodus generation. Now what covenant was that? Mosaic. Mosaic. The law of Moses was made with the Exodus generation. That is the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant is different. Uh, fifth observation, the fifth observation. The new covenant is going to be applied 
to the minds and hearts of people. It's going to be applied to the minds and hearts of people. So that's an internal thing. That's an internal thing. That's not an outward compliance thing. All right. Finally, number six, sixth observation, and I'm not saying these are the only six observations. I'm just saying these are six general observations about what this passage says. Number six, the new covenant deals with the forgiveness of sin. So under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, sins could not be totally canceled out because the sacrifices were all imperfect sacrifices. So that all the sacrifices were placeholders. They were, they were foreshadowing the one perfect sacrifice to come that would remove sin. Okay, so they, they were all saying, this isn't permanent, this is sort of holding these things until that perfect sacrifice comes. So the, the, there's going to be a forgiveness of sins with the new covenant. Okay, that's going to be different than anything that has happened before. So the new covenant is a, a covenant that's going to be fulfilled in the future from Jeremiah's point of view that God makes with the Jews that's different than the Mosaic Covenant, that's applied internally, spiritually, to a person, and it deals with the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to jump off of those six observations, and I want to say something about the defining aspects of the New Covenant. And they're basically the same thing. Uh, more or less, but these defining aspects of the new covenant help us identify other passages in the Bible that speak of the new covenant. So I, I think we're in agreement, and if you don't agree, you don't have to say anything, uh, but I think we're in agreement that Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the essential expression of the new covenant. It's the, it's the essential one. Um, it's the fullest uh, one. It, it, it is the most specific one. And so it is of interest to us to identify other passages in the Bible that speak of the new covenant. That, that, that at least we might consider as telling us something about the new covenant. So the problem is how do you identify those passages? Well, I just want to walk through a couple ways that we can identify New Covenant passages in places other than Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Okay, first one. Now, now you will be amazed. You will be amazed at this. You'll be amazed, but you got to think hard about it. The first way we identify New Covenant passages outside of Jeremiah 31 is we look for places where it says the New Covenant. <laughs> So, so pretty obvious. Any place in the Bible that says the new covenant is something we have to consider, right? So 
Um, it only appears in 10 places in the Bible. So this isn't a lot. Only in 10 places. So in Jeremiah 31, 31, we have the initial promise of the new covenant. The initial promise of the new covenant. And, uh, and then immediately we go to the New Testament. The New Testament. So in uh, Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Each time that the new covenant is mentioned in these passages, it's in connection to Passover, the institution of the, of the Lord's Supper. Okay? So just think Lord's Supper, and then you'll get all these passages. Right? There's four of them. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke and 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and just, well, anyway, I won't go into that. We don't have, we don't have time to, it's, it, it's interesting to study those four verses, those four verses, and look at how they line up. Look, look at the words. Look at the words that they, they use. And anyway, you see there's two, there two categories. Matthew and Mark fit together real closely, and Luke and 1 Corinthians fit together real closely. Why would Luke and 1 Corinthians fit together real closely? Who's the author of Luke? Luke. Who's the author of 1 Corinthians? Paul. Who were buddies? Luke and Paul. Okay? So the, very similar. Anyway. Um, in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 8 and 13 and chapter 9 verse 15 we have a connection to the initial promise so in Hebrews 8 it's a quotation of Jeremiah 31 okay so it's connecting back to the initial promise and um, Hebrews 12 24 we have a connection of the new covenant to Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant through his death. Okay, through his death. Now that would connect back to uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians as well. And finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, and this is probably the hardest one to classify, we have a connection to Paul's ministry at Corinth. He mentions... Um, it says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Okay. And that's, that's kind of standing on its own out from the rest of all the other ones. There's a, there's at least a loose connection between the rest of them in some way, shape, or form, clearly picking up on parts of Jeremiah 31. Okay. So that's the phrase, the new covenant. How do you know if a passage is talking about the new covenant or not? It says the new covenant. Okay. Uh, secondly, if we see a passage talking about, this is especially true in the Old Testament, if we see a passage talking about being given a new heart, being given a new heart. So I, I think I list passages, three, at least three passages there for you, where it mentions that. Okay? And, and one of the keys, one of the keys of understanding whether a passage is speaking about the new covenant or not is, A, does it mention more than one of the 
aspects of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So being given a new spirit, being given a new heart, that's two aspects. Does it mention that? B, is it connected to the biblical eschatological covenants? In other words, the Abrahamic, land, and Davidic covenants. Is the context mentioning those covenants in any way? And C, and C, is it set in a millennial context? Talking about the restoration of the children of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, or the coming of the Messiah to reign. If, if you find A, B, or C there, and you find an aspect of the new covenant in those passages, it's talking about the new covenant, okay? It's talking about the new covenant. So, given a new heart, then any passage that talks about being given a new spirit or being given the spirit of God, and there's a bunch of those, a bunch of those, then passages that talk about forgiveness of sin and cleansing. Now, it's not just that alone, but they need to have a combination of things. Um, millennial kingdom, you know, some of these other aspects in combination. Where you see it said, where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God, that is a new covenant passage. That is most definitely a new covenant passage. And um, finally, in those places where you have this covenantal language where it mentions God specifically and Israel specifically as parties to the covenant. So um, these are some things that help guide us as to what are new covenant passages. There are a number of these in the Old Testament, a number of them. And uh, we don't have the time to go through each of those, but uh, they would be interesting to go through. I mean, the, the easy thing for me to say is for you to read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, and the New Covenant, I think, is even in the book of Daniel. Um, that would be the easiest, the easiest way to do it. So uh, there's even other things that we can consider. Like when we read uh, Jeremiah 31, it sounds strangely familiar or similar to regeneration, being given a new heart and a new spirit. So it's, the, it's like the idea of, of regeneration. Um, so maybe John chapter 3 and Titus 3 are making a reference to uh, the new covenant. Probably John 3 more than Titus 3. Interestingly enough, the word regeneration only appears two times in the New Testament. Titus 3, and I think the other one is in Matthew 24, I think. Matthew 24 is a millennial kingdom context. The regeneration there is the millennial kingdom. So isn't that interesting? New Covenant is related to the millennial kingdom, and you have this word regeneration connected there as well. So... Anyway, I've talked about some of these other things and, and talked about some of the other places in the Old Testament that you can look to find the New Covenant. And I think I give you a list of passages that you can, you can look up there. So, um, so my watch is fast, so I still have another minute to go here. And 
Um, I, I do want us to switch gears from the Old Testament to New Testament and just at least give initial thought to the New Covenant and the New Testament. Uh, the New Covenant, the, the phrase New Covenant, appears nine times in the New Testament. Remember, how many times does it appear in the entire Bible? Ten times. Nine times in the New Testament. And we've already talked about all these passages. I've already mentioned all these passages where it appears. However, these aren't the only passages that refer to the New Covenant. There are passages in the New Testament that don't say new covenant. They just mention the word covenant. But it refers to uh, the new covenant. For example, Romans chapter 9 verse 4. Romans chapter 9 verse 4 says this. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, plural. So that's not singling out the new covenant, but it includes the new covenant in its mention there. Uh, Romans eleven twenty seven. we've already looked at that uh, maybe two weeks ago, where it says, for this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sin. That's new covenant. That's the new covenant, but it doesn't say new covenant, but it says covenant referring to uh, the new covenant. Um, Hebrews 7.22, better covenant, better covenant. That's talking about the new covenant. We see the same thing in uh, Hebrews 8.6, better covenant. Talking about new covenant. Hebrews 810, 8, it says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house. Now that's talking about, that's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. So you see this throughout different places in the New Testament where not, it doesn't just say new covenant, it just, you know, it says covenant and the context tells you it's the new covenant. So the point I want you to see is that it's mentioned over and over again, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And so when we come back in two weeks, so next week we're off, the following week we'll be back. When we come back then, we're going to look at the parties of the covenant just very briefly because we've been over that over and over again. We're going to look at the provisions and nature of the covenant. And then we're going to look at the fulfillment of the covenant. So we will spend most of that hour talking about the fulfillment of the covenant. The other stuff is pretty, pretty straightforward. We don't need to say much more than just list things. Okay. Well, we are out of time. And I'm three minutes over, so that's acceptable, okay? That's acceptable, because we, we work on the ish principle, you know, 1030-ish. <laughs> so let me pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for our time this evening. Thank you for the truth of the new covenant. And, uh, Lord, while we might find some things difficult to understand uh, when we read your word, just take it straightforwardly. 
Uh, oftentimes, things that seem confusing, um, your word just works out for us if we just take it for what it says. And so we're thankful for the clarity of your word. Be with us now as we go our separate ways. Go to our homes. Give us safety. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.